Well, this last week we began our Advent sermon series from the book of Isaiah. So if you have a Bible or if you grabbed one of our guest Bibles, you're welcome to turn there now. Last week we began our our, uh, Advent journey here in chapter 7, where we saw the story of King Ahaz, that wicked king of Judah, who out of fear that the kings in the north of Israel and Syria were conspiring against him, turned instead uh, from going to Yahweh to Uh, the king of Assyria. And so uh, he chose, instead of trusting the word of the Lord, to take matters into his own hands. And you recall that story there and how that went about and the sign that the Lord gave him as a result. And uh, what ended up happening is the the very uh, means of salvation in the mind of Ahaz actually became the very means of his destruction. There in verse 17, the Lord says that he will bring the king of Assyria upon him rather than uh, their deliverer, the king of Assyria would be uh, their conqueror. And that chapter will then go on if we were to take the time to read the rest of that chapter, which we're we're not going to today. We're going to be in the middle of chapter 8. But if we were to continue through the end of chapter 7, we'd see what this invasion would end up looking like in the land of Judah. What will be the result of the Lord's judgment through through their enemy? Well, uh, foreigners from outside of the land will, will swarm in and begin to settle there and and begin to take over things that once belonged to the people of Judah. They will lose their land, they'll lose their crops, they'll lose their people. People will be taken out. So it's a sort of a a replacement going on or a displacement going on. Talk about a great displacement. This happened in the life of Judah as invaders would come in, they'd take the people of God out into exile um, and they would lose what belonged to them. And uh, those who remained, their their properties would be uh, reduced, the values would plummet, what was once cultivated and productive, well, it will become wild and barren. It's sort of the reverse of the conquest, isn't it? You remember back uh, in, in uh, Joshua when, when the people of God crossed into the promised land that God had, had given to them. Um, they, they displaced the people that were there then, and they began to cultivate what was wild, and they began to taste of the fruits of the land, and, and what was going to happen now is sort of the reverse of that. They, they would uh, be the ones that were cast out and, and things would, would, be, um, would revert to the way they were before. And so we see that if the, the promise of Yahweh is to give a land to his people, a land that is flowing with milk and honey, well, the judgment of Yahweh would be the reverse, that the people would be removed from the land. And so uh, what chapter 7 proclaims, the beginning of chapter 8 will confirm. We come to that chapter and we see that for the wicked, the Lord's judgment will be swift, it'll be decisive, and it will be unavoidable. And that's a a really negative word for for them, and in a way, it kind of feels negative to us, doesn't it? We're here, we're surrounded by all these Christmas lights, and we have the the multi-generational choir, and the kids in their red and in their greens, and and then here we come to Isaiah, and he's talking about um, some really hard truths. And, And for the wicked... The Lord's judgment is coming. He keeps his word, whether it's a promise of blessing or a word of warning. And this is the sign of Emmanuel that we get here in Isaiah. That yes, Yahweh saves the righteous, but Yahweh, well, he judges the wicked. And it's an uncomfortable sign. It's not quite like uh, normally when we talk about Emmanuel at, at, Christ, at Christmas time, and we get the warm fuzzies, and, and we, we feel nostalgic, and we feel, you know, that sort of the mushy, gushy feelings of, of the season. Well, 
there's nothing mushy and gushy in Isaiah. And so uh, we turn there and we want to hear what, what is the word of the Lord to the people then and what is the word of the Lord for the people of God today. So as we continue through Isaiah's deconstruction of our warm and fuzzy Christmas, we're going to pick up our reading here in the middle of, of chapter 8 and we're going to... Uh, we're going to see in this section that the NLT labels a call to trust the Lord that the people of God have a choice. They have a choice that lies before them. It's a challenge regarding in whom or in what will they trust. In the face of coming judgment and calamity, what are the people to do? So to answer that question, we're going to begin our reading in verse 11, and we're going to read all the way through the end of the chapter. Here, beginning Isaiah chapter 8, verse 11. If you grab the guest Bible, we're on page 554. A call to trust the Lord. The Lord has given me a strong warning not to think like everyone else does. He said, don't call everything a conspiracy like they do, and don't live in dread of what frightens them. Make the Lord of heaven's armies holy in your life. He is the one you should fear. He is the one who should make you tremble. He will keep you safe. But to Israel and Judah, he will be a stone that makes people stumble, a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many will stumble and fall, never to rise again. They will be snared and captured. Preserve the teaching of God. Entrust his instructions to those who follow me. I will wait for the Lord, who has turned away from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my hope in him. I and the children the Lord has given me serve as signs and warnings to Israel from the Lord of heaven's armies who dwells in his temple on Mount Zion. Someone may say to you, let's ask the mediums and those who consult the spirits of the dead. With their whisperings and murmurings, they will tell us what to do. But shouldn't the people of God, shouldn't the people ask God for guidance? Should the living seek guidance from the dead? Look to God's instructions and teachings. People who contradict his word are completely in the dark. They will go from one place to another, weary and hungry. And because they are hungry, they will rage and curse their king and their God. They will look up to heaven and down at the earth. And wherever they look, there will be trouble and anguish and dark despair. They will be thrown out into the darkness. When facing calamity, what are the people to do? The strong warning that the Lord has issued to Isaiah here is to not think like everyone else. Sort of a, this idea of if, if the world in its collective thought is moving in a particular direction, the people of God are to move in an opposite direction than that. Last week we saw from Ahaz on down, the people of Judah, they were driven by what? Was it by their faith in God? Was it driven by their, their confidence in, in Yahweh's power and in his goodness and in his sovereign control over the affairs of the world? No, they were driven by fear. Fear that was cultivated in their hearts due to the, the rumors and the conspiracies they were hearing. That, that these, these rival nations were coming together to invade and to attack and to take from them what belonged to them. And as a result of that, they were driven away from the Lord rather than to the Lord. And anytime someone who claims to be a, a, a person of God, a person of faith, anytime someone does that, it speaks volumes about how they view God who they think God really is in the first place. To the people of Judah, God is not the sovereign Lord and creator of the universe. To, to the people of Judah, he's not their redeemer who with a strong right hand delivers his people. 
To the people of Judah, he's not in control of all things. He doesn't have their ultimate best interest in mind. He's not superintending the course of, of history for his glory and for their good. No. Ahaz catches word of an alliance between Israel and Syria, and instead of turning to Yahweh, he turns to the greatest foe that they all had to face. And it's in times like that when, when actions truly speak louder than words. Now, at the risk of oversimplifying things here in our passage, the, the message here for us can really be boiled down to one simple point. Now, it doesn't mean that I'm going to tell you the point and we're all going to sing the closing song and go home. I have a little more for you than that. But if we were to do something like that, the simple point would be this. What will we do in the face of suffering or hardship or difficulty or some sort of calamity? What are the choices? Well, option number one, which you see there in verses 11 and, and 12 here that, that uh, the Lord said to the people of Judah through the prophet uh, Isaiah, option number one is to forget God's sovereignty and to trust in something else. That's the first choice you have. You might be saying, well, I would never do that. Well, good. But listen, it's real easy when things go wrong to become paranoid, to become anxious, to become reactionary, to, to find yourself turning to really anything we think that's going to explain things for us, anything that's going to give us a sense of control. The people in Isaiah's day just like you may, have, uh, you may remember when we were back in uh, 1 Samuel and we talked about what the behavior of Saul as, as he saw the, the writing on the wall, so to speak, and he began to, to, to face um, things that were out of his control. Instead of turning to Yahweh, what did Saul do? Well, he did what the people of God are still doing in the time of Isaiah. They're considering turning to mediums, to divination, to try to learn the future and, and to find the guidance that they think they need. Now, you and I may not be tempted to do that necessarily, I hope no one in here is, is tempted to do something like that. But there's always a temptation to seek comfort or direction or peace or a, a sense, of, a feeling of, of being on top of things, of, of not being overwhelmed by things from something other than God and his word. Think about the things in your life. What are those things that when, when things begin to go wrong that you turn to? To the people of God in every age, the, the warning comes, don't be like others. If the world is moving this direction, you and I need to be moving that direction. Instead of, of thinking and acting like those who don't have a faith and a confidence in God and his word, um, option number two is the option for us. And that is to trust in God and his word alone. Don't fear anything but him, the message is. It doesn't matter what the thing in your life is that has you worried or concerned or, or causing suffering or pain. Fear God above even that. In fact, verse 13 says, make the Lord of heaven's armies holy in your life. We are to sanctify him, to set him apart in our life as something not common, as something that is unique and, and something that, that is, is unlike anything else. And this is the only right response to bad things. It's to double down your commitment and your obedience to God. It's not to, to turn from him to other things. It's to recommit ourselves to him in the midst of the hardship. To sanctify him is to make him the, the single most significant fact of your existence. It's to say, no matter how big my problems are, no matter how hard things tend to be, God is bigger. God is more real than that. God is more important than those things. 
To sanctify him is to live all of life as though he, he really is who we say he is. If God is really God, if he really is the sovereign creator who's superintending all of creation, if he really is the, the gracious redeemer who, who has done whatever it takes to, to rescue his people with a strong right hand, if he really is the one who is all good and all powerful, who has his glory and your good in mind, then, well, he can be trusted. In everything we face, you and I can ask ourselves this question. What does it mean for me to sanctify God in my life in fill in the blank? Fill in the blank. Whatever it is you brought in with you this morning, that's the fill in the blank for you. What, is the, what does it mean to set God apart in your life in the midst of that? Are you being treated unjustly by somebody? Are you undergoing some sort of temptation? Are you struggling with some particular sin? Are you dealing with a bad diagnosis? Is someone that you love undergoing some sort of hardship? Is your marriage on the rocks? Are you under pressure? Fill in the blank. What does it mean to sanctify God in the midst of that? What bearing does it have on your mind, on your heart, on your attitude, on your behaviors that God is God? After all, and this is the hard, the hard part of Isaiah's message here, the part that begins to sort of deconstruct the warm fuzzies of, of Christmas that we, we tend to think about this time of year. The hard part is, is this. One's attitude towards God will determine one's experience of God. That's the jarring lesson of verses 14 and 15 in our passage here. You know, to those who sanctify God, who set him apart in their lives, who, who live life as though God really is who we say he is, for those who do that, he becomes a sanctuary. Look at the beginning of verse 14, the, the first line there. He will keep you safe. It is this promise that God will make room within himself to be your shelter, to be your refuge, to be your strength, to provide for your needs. He, he makes room within himself for you to rest for you to, to find comfort and healing the things that you truly need. And from that place of refuge, one that rests in his power and in his goodness and in the reality of who he is, you can face whatever isn't whatever you filled that blank in with. If, if your life is, is hidden with Christ and God, you can face whatever the hardship or the difficulty or the circumstances in your life are. You can, you can, have, you can have a confidence in the midst of that. You can have a peace within the midst of that. Not a peace that, that, that comes from some you know, false delusional hope that, well, as long as I rest in God, then everything will, will be ironed out immediately. You know, that's a delusional hope. That's not a, a biblical promise. There is no promise that, that once you sanctify God in your heart that the things will become simple or, or that all the problems will be resolved in the blink of an eye. No, that's never the promise. But the promise is that you can have a true hope grounded in the word of God that affirms that despite the difficulty and despite the suffering, we can be confident that God is present, that God is at work, that God has his glory and your ultimate good in mind. It's the, it's the very essence of Romans 8.28 that we've, we've gone back to time and time again over the years, this promise that God is working things together for his glory and for your good. But the hard part is the second part of verse 14. 
right? We, we like the first part. I sanctify him in my, in my life, and he becomes a sanctuary for me. But what does the rest of the verse say? Well, to those who do not sanctify him in their lives, he himself becomes a stone to trip over. Some of you have been trying to decipher uh, the, uh, the artwork on the front of your bulletin there. You know, the, the, the series uh, title is uh, Signs of the Season. And already I've had uh, guesses for what the different things stand for. And, and uh, I'll just let you know, it's, it's not as, um, it's not a secret. It's, it's pretty plain what these images are. And if you're reading Isaiah 7, 8, 9, you'll come pretty quickly to understand what they mean. But that second one, I've heard a little bit of everything. I've heard diamond, I've heard rock, I've, what are some of the other things? I'm trying to remember some of the other things I've heard. That, and, and, I, and I get it, it's not the most obvious thing, but that is a stone. And it is not the stone that, that was rolled away at the empty tomb, right? This is, this is a, 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 a different kind of stone from our text here. It is a stone of stumbling or a rock of offense. And, and the word of, of the Lord to Isaiah there in the second half of verse 14 is, for those who do not sanctify the Lord as God in their lives, the ones who don't rest in him and find him to be a sanctuary, he himself becomes that for them. In other words, you can't just be neutral towards God. You cannot be neutral towards him as if to say, you know, I, I choose to just kind of live my, I'm going to live my life. I'm not going to bother God. God won't bother me. You know, we're just going to sort of if he exists, he's out there somewhere. We can just kind of coexist. You know, I'm going to live my life. I'm going to do what I want to do and not really worry about that. I'm not going to factor that into the equation of my life as if you can just pretend he doesn't exist and it won't have any impact on you. Listen, there was a, a time I was in my office and I was at my computer and I have a, a little, you know, little mouse connected to the computer and I was, you know, clicking around and doing stuff and, and suddenly the mouse started acting really funny. You know, the, I'd move it, and it would, the cursor wouldn't move on the screen, and then, and then it would, like, move all crazy all at once, and, and it just, it was driving me bonkers. And, you know, I didn't know what, what to do. I began, you know, checking the connection, making sure it was connected right, and I was, you know, kind of banging it on the, the, the desk there, and, you know, I was, I, I was checking the settings in the, in the computer, and, you know, I was one step away from, you know, maybe considering an exorcism or something. Like, what is, the devil's in this mouse, is not working right, what am I going to do? And it wasn't until I finally had the, the brilliant idea of turning it over, and I unplugged it first, so you people are worried about, like, laser beams and eyeballs and stuff. I unplugged it first, and I looked at the little sensor, you know, it's like the, maybe about as round as a eraser on a number two pencil. And I looked real closely, and sure enough, right there on the little lens was just the tiniest little fuzz. Just the tiniest. You couldn't even see it unless you looked like this. The tiniest little fuzz was on that sensor. And, you know, I gave it a quick blow and plugged it back in. And when you know, it worked exactly like it was supposed to. It's funny how that works, isn't it? You know, people who try to live life and face challenges and seek purpose, but don't take into account the reality of God, will never be able to make sense of those things. Because you can't simply dismiss him. That would be like me trying to, to, to proceed with this, this ridiculous mouse as if, you know, there, there wasn't an actual thing that was causing it to act that way. 
It would be like me not taking into consideration what was really going on in this moment. And that's not me trying to say that God is like an annoying little fuzz. I'm making the point that people who reject his existence or dismiss his existence or his reality do so at their own peril. Assyria is coming whether you acknowledge it or not. You can't just dismiss Yahweh and think that it's not going to have an impact on your life. Now, Isaiah is not going to make any such mistake as that. He says there in verse 17, I will wait for the Lord. I will put my hope in him. Though he has turned his face from Judah, though he has turned his face from Israel, though by his hand the razor of Assyria is coming in judgment, nevertheless, I will not lose faith. I will not turn away to some other source of comfort or strength. Isaiah was convinced that God and his timing are always best. Isaiah will trust in the Lord's saving action on his behalf. For those who trust the Lord, he'll say in chapter 40, verse 31, this is some of, some of your all's life verse. If you have a life verse, this is, this is the one for many of you. For those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. But for those who don't, for those who don't trust in the Lord, well, he will be the stone that makes people stumble, a rock that makes them fall. A life lived with ambivalence towards God will invariably crash against the reality of his existence. It'll happen to us all. And nowhere is this truth seen more clearly nor fulfilled more completely than in the person of Jesus Christ. Right, he's the one that the writers of the New Testament, when they were reading back in Isaiah, looked at Isaiah and said, oh, Isaiah's speaking about him. When, Isaiah, when, when the word of the Lord comes to Isaiah and says that, 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 the, that the Lord himself will be a stone that makes people stumble, a rock that makes people fall, they said, Christ is that stone. He is the rock of offense. And you will either build your life upon him as a firm foundation or your life will stumble and break upon him to your everlasting destruction. And nowhere is this sort of double-edged reality seen more clearly than in, uh, in 1 Peter. I think it's going to be up on the screen here. There in chapter 2, we come to this passage where Peter is going to sandwich uh, a, a, a verse from a psalm in between two key verses from Isaiah, one of them being uh, this one from verse 14 in chapter 8 here. So he's going to sandwich these, these three together to make this point. L- listen to what he says here. As the scriptures say, verse 6, I am placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem, chosen for great honor, and anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Christ. Christ is that cornerstone. Yes, you who trust him recognize the honor God has given him, but for those who reject him, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And he is the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they do not obey God's word, and so they meet the fate that was planned for them. Peter was reading Isaiah, and he's, his, his understanding was you know, illuminated by you know, the truth of Jesus that he has come to know, and, you know, and by the, the presence of the Spirit who is inspiring these words, and he's seeing Isaiah, and he sees the pattern there. 
this pattern that we've already identified, this message from God through Isaiah to the people of Judah then, you either sanctify him as Lord of your life, and, and when you do that, he becomes your sanctuary, or you will not, and he will become the stone over which your life trips upon and, and crashes. And Peter sees that, and he says this, this is talking about Christ. You cannot be neutral towards him. He will be the cornerstone of your life or the rock by which you are destroyed. Every person that is alive today will either be saved by him or judged by him. Failure to take him into consideration, to make him the most significant fact of your existence, will come at your own peril. Yes, Christmas is about, let me tell you something. It's beautiful in here, but it is a pain to turn all those lights on. There's a lot of things that have to be plugged in on a Sunday morning. Lots of little bulbs that have to be turned and plugged, fake snow moved out of the way. I mean, it takes time. Like when I finished plugging in most of these lights, I had a little bit of sweat on my forehead. It was that much work. And yes, Christmas is beautiful. Christmas is about light and hope and joy and peace and love. But do not be mistaken. Emmanuel causes conflict. That was an amen. <laughs> Emmanuel causes conflict. The very prince of peace himself in Matthew 10, 34 said, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. Now, if we read that out of context, it sounds like he's a warmonger, right? Uh, it's by the sword that his kingdom will advance. That's not what he was saying at all. It was, a, it was a figure of speech. It's not a call to violence. It's a figure of speech that acknowledges that he understood enough about himself to say that his very existence will cause strife. Not just among people, but within people. People who, who once were, were in agreement will now be at odds because of him. People who once had a settled worldview in their minds and their hearts, well, that's all going to get flipped upside down because of him. People will become at war within themselves because of this prince of peace. The peacemaker from heaven is a polarizer on earth. And that's not because he's a troublemaker who delights in creating conflict, not at all. No, he is a polarizer on earth because people prefer darkness to light. Next week in chapter 9, we're going to read a verse that says, for those who live in a land of darkness, a light will shine. What does light do to darkness? Light dispels darkness. Does darkness like light? No, because light and darkness cannot coexist. And the light of Christ simultaneously exposes the glory of God. So it's, it's an, illuminating, it's an illuminating light. It reveals, it exposes who God is, but it has the effect of also revealing and exposing who, who I is. What's in here? The darkness in here. What, what makes me what I thought I was? It's revealed who I truly am. And as the light of the world, he is a figure who is inherently 
Meaning, by virtue of just who he is, his very person is one that brings both hope and offense. You see it in the world around you. You, You've experienced it in your own life. And your attitude towards him will determine your experience of him. I love the story in Luke chapter 2 of the prophet Simeon. We, uh, I think we were there, I don't know, two years ago, three years ago in Advent. Uh, that was where we were camped out that, that season. We came to chapter 2 and we saw this, this old prophet who, who, he was pro- who was promised by God that he would not die until he saw Israel's salvation. And he waited and he waited and he waited. And then finally at last, uh, he, he takes, he, he's introduced to this, this baby and as he picks the baby up and he looks into his eyes, by the, by the inspiration of the Spirit, he knows, my eyes have seen your salvation. And he would say, this, this child is a light to reveal God to the nations. He is the glory of your people Israel. But in the very next verse, as he's, he's handing the baby back to the baby's mother, he looks Mary in the face, and in verses 34 and 35, he says, This child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And oh, by the way, Mary, a sword will pierce your very own soul. Listen, the greatest gift of all time presents all people in all places the greatest crisis of all time. Will you or will you not receive him? Will you or will you not receive this gift? That's the crisis. And many won't. And in so doing, they will, they will move from, from light back into darkness. And they will descend deeper and deeper into darkness. As Isaiah said in our passage here, wherever they look, there will be trouble and anguish and dark despair. There is no, there is no light. There is no meaning. There is no hope. There is no joy. All the things we talk about during Advent, you cannot find those things apart from him. And if, if you have lived any part of your life seeking those things apart from Christ, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's nothing but, but darkness and trouble and anguish and despair apart from him. But for those that do seek him, for those who will receive him, who see and receive him for who he is, who sanctify him as God in their lives, who set him apart in their hearts, who build their lives upon the truth of who he is, well, he will then become the great foundation of all your hopes and the fountain of all your joy. So the question is, who is he to you today? The crisis of God. I love what Luke tells us there about Simeon in verse 27. It's not going to be on the screen, but... Luke tells us that that day in his life, the Holy Spirit led him to the temple. That's an interesting little fact, isn't it? What does that tell us? Well, 
at least in Simeon's life, and I would say in all of our lives, it tells us that the Spirit of God himself seeks to guide people into a face-in-face encounter with the Son of God. And I believe that he's at work here this morning. That he is here to to guide you and to guide me into a a face-to-face encounter with, with Jesus Christ who promised us that God blesses those who do not fall away on account of him. Who is he to you this morning? Will you sanctify him as as God in your life? Will you build your life upon the solid rock of who he is and what he taught and what he did and what he's going to do? Will he be the cornerstone of your life that holds everything else together? Will you let him become your sanctuary? The one in whom you find your rest and your peace amidst the storms. I'm grateful for the rain a minute ago. Some of you have, it's, it's symbolic of, what, of your life. You're in a storm. Will you let him be your shelter amidst the storm? He wants to be that for you, and that's the invitation for you today. Pastor Jeff. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for uh, just hearing the, the kids in the choir a moment ago. And we thank you that the Depews are with us and we get to hear uh, some of the great things you're doing through their ministry there in, in uh, Eastern Europe. And uh, we're just uh, grateful for the, the season and the chance to uh, be together on Sunday morning in this beautiful space and for all the, the festivities and the fun things ahead with a night of Christmas and ringing the Salvation Army bell and um, Christmas Eve candlelight and, and just everything, Christmas parties, just all the the wonderful things that we fill these days up with. But I pray, God, that at the center of it all would be an acknowledgement that you are who you are, that we would decide, that we would not just let these things happen accidentally in our lives, but that we would be determined to set you apart as holy in us, that we would make you the cornerstone, that you'd be the single most important fact of all existence, that you would be, that you would be God. And I know there's some here this morning who desperately need that to happen in their lives because they're going through a lot. There's so much pain and there's so much fear. There's so much loneliness. There's so much despair and they, they want to believe, but like we, we said the other week, they want to believe and they do believe, but Lord, help them with their unbelief. Reveal yourself to us now in this, this time of prayer and this time of response as we're faced with the crisis of will we trust in you and your word or will we, or will we look somewhere else? Lord, may we, be, may we make the right decision here this morning, I pray, for your glory and for your sake. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.